This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 25th. Today, a mother on what happens after your child is killed by police, and how the pandemic is raising concerns about abuse at home. Tamir was shot by Cleveland police on November 22nd, 2014, at the age of 12, while playing with a toy gun in a park. Taylor Turner is a video producer for The Post. There's really no way you could prepare yourself for it, and it's not easy. I'm Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice from Cleveland, Ohio. Two little boys came and knocked on my door. It had to be about 3.30, and they came knocked on my door and told me the police just shot your son twice in the stomach. The toy gun did not have the orange label seal on it that would indicate it is a toy gun. And Tamir was shot. He later died the next day. So why did you want to talk to Tamir's mom now? This week would have been Tamir's 18th birthday. Oh, wow. He also would have graduated with the high school class of 2020. And so it was really a look at where a child's life could have been. And that's what really struck me because in the midst of all these stories, I think sometimes we lose the focus. We lose the vision that this is someone's child. This is someone's brother. This is someone's family member. And I just really wanted to bring that, bring that back to light. And I think, Tamir Rice represents so, so much for so many people. You know, it was at this point, I feel like there are so many shootings that stick out on our heads. But this one in particular just felt so scary and tragic because he was so unbelievably young. But I think in our remembering of him, he becomes a symbol. And when a child becomes a symbol, you forget that, like, that's a kid who would have been a teenager and who would have been in high school and who would be graduating now and imagining vividly what that life would or, or could have looked like. Right. And then we also sometimes don't see the family that's attached to that and how they're still to this day grieving or processing trauma and what what happens, like how that trauma is re-triggered. In some cases, every time another black or brown person dies at the hands of law enforcement. Every time a black or brown person is murdered, Tamir's name is always mentioned. So I just trying to deal with that part for the most part. So tell me what it was like talking to Samaria Rice. So speaking with Samaria, you very much felt that passion through the phone. Yeah, they don't really like to have me on certain platforms because I speak the real. I really get some stuff started, but that's okay. 
we did an audio interview and not even being able to like see her face and see those emotions, I felt them. I felt them in her voice. I felt them in the power of her words and I felt them in her word choice. Uh, and it was just a really vulnerable moment that I was very appreciative of. Um, she normally doesn't do media appearances during the week of his birthday in order to honor him. So I was very grateful for her time and her openness because she's also expressed the, I'll say frustration. She didn't use that word, but the frustration of every time a similar situation happens, the media reaches out to her. Mm. And so I really wanted to do my best to make sure that this experience was different and that I got her story across and I still did it in a way that was still news oriented and, and, and provided value and perspective. Yeah, I can imagine that must be so difficult to be in her position of not only are you re-traumatized every time you see somebody else's death shown over and over again on TV and on the internet in a way that reminds you of, of your own child's death, that that's also the moment where everyone suddenly wants to talk to you again or where you have to be the most communicative or the most uh, poised about this grief and trauma that you have been going through and continue to go through. Uh, what did she say about how that grief and, and that trauma has been going for her? Unfortunately, my family is, the uh, how can I say, is damaged, destroyed. She talked about her family uh, continues to go to counseling and she encourages all her children to continue to go to counseling. My kids suffer daily with PTSD when not making good decisions and not quite understanding their role and who they are. And one of the ways, in addition to counseling, to help manage that, she also tries to limit her time on social media, especially during these moments, the moments where another Black person has been killed by, by police. It's very hard for me to keep reliving reliving what happened to the family because I'm I'm already reliving it when they murder another black or brown person in this country. She also talked about her daughter who was 14 at the time that Tamir was shot and was on the scene, how she suffers one of the most severe forms of PTSD because she was on the scene. Well, she's she's the probably out of the, all of the siblings, she's impacted the most. She was handcuffed and put in back of a police car and forced to see her brother die. So what ended up happening to the police officer who killed Tamir? And what does Samaria say about whether or not she feels like she and her family have gotten justice? So the grand jury declined to indict the officer. He was then fired after it was discovered he was previously deemed unfit for duty. Then later, he applied for a job at a separate force, and he backed out of that part-time job with another Ohio Police Department uh, days after he was hired. Samaria still wants justice. She has a narrative that she really wants to get out there and firmly believes, which includes defunding the police and putting that money back into the community, and especially urban communities. My thing with defunding the police, 
department and <clears throat> doing away with qualified immunity and uh, uh, police bill of rights, the blue alert and the Garrity law, those need to be the demands of America right now. I don't know what everybody else is thinking. She believes that the protests should continue, but they should continue to be peaceful and that these protests need to have a clear agenda and they should be taking place in particular areas. One of those being like outside of the governor's house or outside of the Capitol. And she just really stressed the importance of strategizing where you protest and why to make sure that key players are involved and their voices are heard. And she also, as a part of this justice, demands that the mothers and fathers of these victims need to be at the the decision-making table. Those need to be the demands of America right now. Taylor Turner is a video producer for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. Across the country, there have been reports of a major drop in child abuse calls and referrals to Child Protective Services. For example, D.C. had a 62% drop in hotline calls to Child and Family Services. That's comparing mid-March to mid-April to the same period last year. And across the country, we're seeing reports of major declines in calls related to child abuse, even though we know that that does not mean that child abuse is going down. I'm Samantha Schmidt, and I write about gender and family issues for The Post. So who tends to report abuse most often? We know that referrals to Child Protective Services most often come from professionals, such as police officers, lawyers, doctors, other people who come into contact with kids as part of their job. Uh, But more than anyone else, educators are the ones who flag possible signs of child abuse. They were actually responsible for about 20 to 21% of the 4.1 million referrals made in 2018. So so the educators that you've heard from, what are they saying about their concerns and also how they're trying to keep tabs on the health and safety of kids, even though they aren't being able to see them in person? Right. They're worried that they're not getting as much one-on-one close contact with students to really sense whether there's something wrong, whether 
it's, you know, visible signs such as bruises, or if it's something kind of more nuanced, like they're a little down or they're having issues finding food, other kind of small signs that you might catch when you're in close contact with a student during the day that you're not able to catch as easily over a Zoom call. And some of the people who would catch these uh, red flags would be school nurses or security guards, other people who would come across a kid throughout the school day. And those contacts just aren't happening anymore. So for child welfare experts and, and advocates and pediatricians, they're concerned that this this downturn in the number of calls about child abuse are not reflective of an actual downturn in kids being abused, but a reduction in people reporting it. Exactly. And we know that in times of economic insecurity, uh, that there's additional stress and that increases child abuse rates. For example, one Texas hospital told me that they saw the most common cause of death among children in 2008 change from car crashes to blunt trauma uh, as a result of child abuse. So the fact that these calls are going down is really troubling to people because it makes them think that they're just not catching these children who are really vulnerable and in really dangerous situations right now. My name is Allison Jackson. I am a child abuse pediatrician and the chief of the Child and Adolescent Protection Center at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. The overall volume of children that we're seeing is decreased. However, the number, the concentration, if you will, of severe cases is greater. In several hospitals across the country, I heard that while total volume of patients has declined uh, with so many people you know, trying to avoid hospitals and emergency rooms right now, the cases that are coming forward are really serious. They're really brutally abused kids with blunt force trauma, with fractured skulls, with injuries that were serious enough to be hospitalized, and that kids were dying at higher rates than they were usually seeing. So we are seeing much more often children with uh, significant injuries, um, such as head trauma, multiple fractures, and some severely battered children. And a spokeswoman for the American College of Emergency Physicians told me that she's heard from colleagues across the country who have said that they're seeing more serious cases in a week than they're used to seeing in a month. I spoke with one forensic interviewer in Fairfax, Virginia, named Angela Haslett, who is really worried because she's used to seeing about 10 to 15 cases a week at her child advocacy center, um, usually from police or child protective services. And most of the cases involve sexual abuse. As blunt as it sounds, when you have a child with a broken arm, you can have a doctor to say, you know, that broken arm was caused by some sort of blunt force trauma this child's been abused. You have evidence right there. When you have a child saying, somebody's sexually abused me and there's no physical evidence, the only way we get their cases is when they finally feel safe to tell somebody. And there's a lot of children in situations where the abuse is continuing to happen and it's continuing to happen because they don't feel safe to tell anybody because of the situation that we're in, they have to stay in that unsafe environment. A lot of times these kids tell their therapists during therapist appointments, well, if they're not getting therapy right now, there's that person. Sometimes they tell school guidance counselors or teachers, well, if they're not in school, that's not happening. Sometimes they tell friends and then their friends tell their parents and then their parents report it. Well, if they're not seeing their friends, then they don't have that person to tell. 
the calls have slowed to two to five a week. And more of them now involve children with injuries that are really visible and really serious, like a broken arm or bruised up face, uh, cases that were clearly bad enough that an adult had no choice but to seek medical help for the kid. And she's worried that there are too many cases that she's not seeing, especially the cases of child sexual abuse. So for pediatricians who are seeing kids come in with injuries that are more serious than what they've typically seen in the past, I imagine that's probably because kids who are in potentially dangerous situations, that there would have been someone around to intervene earlier before it kind of exploded into something that actually resulted in in really serious injuries. Right. It's the combination of that stress of unemployment, the financial insecurity that has strained those relationships between children and their parents, the closures of schools that have forced kids closer to those parents that may not be safe, and the lack of those people around, those educators, to watch out for them or to speak up until it's too late. And so then what are the potential solutions here, or at least stopgap measures that people can use to try to keep tabs on kids who are in potentially dangerous situations, even if they're not going to be able to catch them at school or at doctor's visits? I know that there are a lot of teachers, for example, teachers we talked to in Virginia, who are really making an effort to try to meet one-on-one with kids. And one teacher we talked to had uh, a really interesting approach where she's asking uh, students to, as they're clicking through their PowerPoints during these Zoom calls, a pop-up will prompt them to register how they're feeling on a sliding scale from red for awful to orange to yellow to blue, which is that they're feeling perfect. And the answer is sent directly to the teacher and the parents can't see it. You know, one fifth grade teacher told us that for years, she's known how to look for the signs of possible abuse. You know, students who are falling asleep randomly, students stealing their friends' food at snack time, prolonged absences with reasons that make no sense, doctor's notes that never arrive, and, you know, all of those kind of question marks that teachers can look out for and can spot during a normal day. They're not able to spot those as easily anymore. Child abuse can be prevented, and parents and families are certainly stressed, and so If you are a stressed out individual, like many of us are, there are people available to help. We have to acknowledge that parenting is difficult without COVID. And so to be mindful of that and to find ways to partner with parents and families, um, this is not intended to be punitive. Um, The goal is for families to be strong and productive and and to kind of be able to pour into their children um, in ways that allow their children to thrive. Samantha Schmidt writes about gender and family issues for The Post. If you are concerned about a child's safety, one of the ways you can help is by calling the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline at 1-800-422-4453. You can also visit their website at childhelp.org for other resources. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
On tomorrow's show, an urgent new album phoned in from jail. It just speaks to the tenacious ability of rap music to always find a way out into the world and allow people to assert their humanity through sound. I think it's incredible. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help managers. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.